We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2. We've looked at the Holy Spirit coming down upon the disciples at Pentecost, the fire being over their heads. They're speaking in, in the languages of all the people that were visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost. Um, they, they accused them of being drunk. Peter got up, if you remember, and said, no, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, this is what God spoke of. And so we look at him continuing his sermon at verse 24. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. For David spoke concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is my, on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my, hurt, my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You have made, you shall make me full of joy with my countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and that his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath unto him, that the fruit of his loins According to the flesh, he would rise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not, was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David... Was, is not ascended into heaven, but he said unto himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit you at my right hand until I make your foes my, your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. David is really, uh, David, uh, Peter is really getting after the, these Jewish people. All right. Jesus had died 50 days before and had been resurrected and spent 40 days with the disciples and showing himself with all power that he had been resurrected. And this is the power of Christianity. We serve a risen Savior. Every other religion has their key leaders dead. Matter of fact, if you're a Muslim, you go and visit your dead leader's tomb at least once in your lifetime to be a good Muslim. All right? Our founder, our, our head is God and is resurrected. And this is what he says as he's looking in this. He says, God hath raised him up and loosed the pains of death or the travail of death because it was not possible that, it should, that he should be held by it. Jesus could not be held by death because he is God. And the Father was not going to let him get held by death because he died for our sins, not his own sins. And so we see here this prophecy that's being, being brought out from David in verse, uh, Psalm 16 is where we find this whole prophecy. And it says, For David spoke concerning him who... It seems like he's speaking about himself, but he quotes, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover was my shall my flesh rest in hope. This is beautiful because Jesus was able to rest. We're able to rest. We are to walk in faith rest with God. He is in charge, and we just put all our faith in him and let him direct. Let him guide. And David was saying, I, he was always before me, he was at my right hand. And we've talked about this before. The right hand is the side of approval. Right? Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And we still, as we've said, have that same uh, thought process. This is my right hand man or my right hand person as is being now 
in, in our PC world. You know, what, do, what do we mean that? This is the person. If you're talking to this person, you're talking to me. When they make a decision, you know, they're making it under my authority. I support them. I approve of them. Jesus is approved of the Father in all that he does. We get to sit at the right hand of Jesus. We don't have quite the same standard of it, but he does approve of us. Why? Because he is in us. He has clothed us. He has made us righteous. And he is there saying, at my right hand and shall not be moved. My heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Also my flesh shall rest in hope. Do we rest in hope? Having faith rest. This is where the more we get to know God, the more rest we're going to have. Because the more I know him, the more I trust him, the more I rest in him. When I first get saved and I'm struggling, I don't have a lot of faith rest because I don't know God. I don't trust God in many ways. And this is the funny thing. When we first get saved, we get saved by faith and barely know what we're doing. All we recognize is I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm miserable and, and I need God to help me. And it's hard to put faith in somebody you don't know because faith is based upon knowledge. God does not say, I want you to blindly have faith. He gives us knowledge and he says, this is who I am. Are you going to trust who I am? And the more we get to know about God, the more faith we can have because we get to know him. We get to know that he loves us. We get to know that he cares for us. We get to know that he's going to protect us. And the more we get to know that, the greater our trust can be in our challenge with him. And this is true of even relationships. When you, the more you get to know somebody, the more you know whether you can trust them or not trust them. And in the human realm, sometimes it proves that we can't trust them. But in the relationship with God, the more we trust, the more we rely on him, the more he proves he is our rest. And this is what he's saying here, that our flesh shall rest in hope. Now, God is going to crucify our flesh. He's going to crucify our soul and leave the spirit coming with him. And we want to remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, they started the clock on physical death. But they died spiritually at the moment they sinned. And they've passed that death on to their generations. Which is why Jesus, when he met with Nicodemus, said, you must be born again. You know, and Nicodemus going, well, how can you go back into your mother's womb? No, and Jesus goes, no, not physically. In your spirit, your spirit has to be born. Did I would say they did. I mean, the sacrifice of the lamb was, was what clothed them, so God showed them how to get forgiveness. Now, it doesn't tell us that they, were, that they confessed, but we see sacrifice going on from that point on. They ultimately knew what they lost. More than anybody else in, that's ever lived, they know what they lost because they had it. We get glimpses of what they lost. Uh, but yes, I do believe that they repented. I believe that they, for the most part, taught their children about God. Now, not all their children obeyed and followed God, and much of their grandchildren did not. But I think they repented, and we they would be what we call Christian, you know, Christians back in fellowship with God through the sacrifice and and seeking after Him. So. But we see over and over, we see a line of people that followed God up till Noah. And then after Noah, we're going to see a line that follows God up until Abraham. And uh, so, and many have fallen away. But that's what Jesus said. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? There are many that think they know God that don't know God because they're not doing it his way. And then there are many that don't even choose God. And we've all talked to some of those at some point in time that just have no desire to know God, or at least no apparent desire to know God. And that's sad, especially when they're family members or good friends, and they have no desire to get to know God. 
and Peter is preaching. You know, Peter, one who didn't want to preach, didn't really want to be a you know, leader, and God kept putting him up front. Right now, he's the leader, and he steps out to be the leader of the church on the day of Pentecost. He gets to give the first sermon. You know, now the, the, the apostles have given sermons in the past. Jesus sent them out two by two, and they, they, they uh, were able to perform miracles. They, they preached. They taught people. But this is the first time since Jesus left that we see them preaching. And it's Peter who steps forward. And, you know, people will go, well, Peter wasn't all that in, educated and everything. Boy, he knows his Bible. He's quoting Psalms. He's quoting Joel. He's quoting, he's quoting scriptures that most people did not know in that, in that day because they knew the Pentateuch. Because the Pentateuch was, is what was and is important to the Jews. God, give me your, give me your laws. I, just tell me what to do and, I, and I'll do them. They don't, but that's what they tell them. If I just know what you want me to do, and they usually ignore all the history books, all the, all the prophecy books. And we've got Peter quoting these books. He quoted Joel at the beginning of it. This is what God said, that in the last days, your young men will dream dreams and your old men uh, will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. This is today, this is what's going on. Now he's quoting Psalms and where where uh, David was, was uh, speaking in prophecy. And it says, Because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. This is the great thing. This is a promise even to us. God gives us joy in his countenance. And it's a beautiful thing when we think about this. I and you get to come before the presence of God and see God. We really don't really understand that as Christians because it's so natural for us that we don't really realize how precious a gift it is. God loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is, Christianity is the only group that are considered religion that has a God that loves them. Other gods do not love them. You try to please your God by being obedient, but your God does not love you. The Muslims have no concept at all of being loved by God. Most Catholics don't even have a concept of being loved by God. And they're close to Christianity with their, with their beginning teachings. The Jews do not understand being loved by God, even though they've got all kinds of examples in the scriptures of various members of their, their religion in the book that were loved by God. They don't have the concept of being loved. They have this concept of an angry God who's always there waiting to, to beat up on them. The sad thing is there's so many Christians that have that concept of God. God is always up there waiting for me to make mistakes so he can pound on me. Oh, we need to understand the love and, love and grace and mercy of God. He is the prodigal son's father standing there saying, Welcome back, child. I've been waiting for you to come back. Matter of fact, the, if you remember that story, the prodigal son's father runs out to meet him. Doesn't even wait for him to get back home. He's been watching for his son to return. Doesn't let him finish his prepared speech. If you remember, the prodigal son was ready to say, Dad, I've, I've sinned against you and, and the family. I don't deserve to be your, called, your, called your child. Just make me, just make me a hired, hired servant again cuts him off in the middle of that speech and says, you're my son. Yeah. This is the way God is treating us. We realize how stupid we were and how bad we've been and how, how far from him we've been. And we come back to him and he cuts us off with our sto stories of repentance and sorrow and says, I know you're sorry, you're here. I know you're, you're repenting, you're here. Now, let's restore you wonderful presence of God. We get to go before God, in before his countenance, 
and be blessed. We get to worship God. We get to come before his throne with grace and mercy and be received. Again, if, you're not, if you don't believe in a loving, caring God, and you're going, well, God, listen to me. Have I done enough good things that God might listen to me? Maybe he'll give me a thimble full of water if I've done enough good things. And we come before God and apologize for all the bad things we've done, and he forgives us and, and welcomes us back with a feast. Not, not a little thimble full of water, not a, not a crust of bread, but a full-fledged feast cleans us up and brings us back into fellowship when we repent. This is the God we follow. This is, this is who we need to communicate to those people that were around that don't know him. God loves them. God loves them. And that's a very powerful statement to give to people. It irritates some people. They don't like to hear God loves you. Because what do they know? Ultimately, they know that they don't deserve God's love. And they're right, they don't. We don't deserve his love. But still, God loves us. He has done all the work so that we can be accepted. The beauty of being in a relationship with God is that he does it all. And so often we have trouble understanding that. And having, somehow we think, you know, uh, well, yeah, God saved me by grace, but somehow I've earned it since then. No, we haven't. Yes, maybe he's crucified a bunch of my flesh and I'm walking better than I used to, but I still don't deserve his love. No matter how good I get, I don't deserve his love. And here is all this going on, and he says we have the joy in his countenance. This is the beauty. I love worshiping God and getting to the place where I'm in his presence for even just a short period of time. Getting into the word and getting into the presence of God and in joy of his, of his countenance, the joy of his look. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of our patriarch David. All right, David was speaking and he's going to say, let me tell you about David. And his statement is that he is dead and buried. <laughs> you know, big, big news flash. <laughs> Uh, and his sepulcher is with us in this city. Right? David was dead, buried. His tomb was right there in Jerusalem in the, in the sepulchers of the king. Yeah. Newsflash, but he's also been, he's been talking about it. This is David talking. I will not be suffered to go into. He was speaking for Jesus. He was speaking as a prophet. So Peter is saying, almost just like you say, newsflash, David spoke this. It wasn't about him. He's, he's, he's right here in this city buried. And he goes on to say, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to his flesh, he would rise up Christ to sit on his throne. All right? Christ is the Greek word that the Jews use for Messiah. The anointed one, God himself, the Messiah, the Savior. All right? When we say Jesus Christ, we're using Jesus with his title. It's, his name isn't Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Messiah, or more importantly, Yeshua. All right? And Messiah. We see the word Christ, and that is his position as Messiah. Uh, as Lord his soul was not left in hell neither his flesh did see corruption Jesus did not stay dead and you know this is kind of an interesting thing Jesus said he would resurrect he told them over and over that when they killed him he was going to come back in three days and you know the beauty of this is that the Jewish leaders actually proved his resurrection by putting a guard on his, on his tomb. They, they put a guard on his tomb so that, that nobody would steal his body and basically proved his resurrection 
when he came forth from the dead. Because there it was a guard that would not let anybody steal that body. People go, well, maybe, maybe these crazy disciples were so sad and so distraught they went to the wrong tomb. Well, you know what? Those leaders knew where he was buried. If they're claiming that he rose from the dead, they would bring the people to the right tomb and say, we don't know what weed these guys were smoking, but here's the body. They did not have a body to present because Jesus rose from the dead. And the, peop- and the guards were bribed to say that the disciples stole the body while they were sleeping. You know, which is really a crazy story because number one, they shouldn't have been sleeping on duty and everybody knew that. And the other thing is, what do you, who do you know what, and what do you know when you're sleeping? Nothing. So if all the guard was sleeping, which didn't make any sense, they still wouldn't know who stole the body. So we see here, the leaders proved that Jesus was resurrected because the body was no longer in the temple, in the, in the, in the tomb that they were guarding. And Peter very confidently is saying, he's not there. You, know, you really don't believe me? Go, go check out the tomb yourself. This is the beauty of them preaching in Jerusalem. You don't, think, you, you, you don't believe us that the body's not there? You go check out the tomb that, the, that the, they, they uh, guarded. Nobody's there. And he says, he was buried, he's, he was raised from the dead, he did not see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. They said it very clearly. We saw him. We are the witnesses. And by Jewish law, all you needed was two witnesses to, to agree. They've got 120 witnesses to agree that they saw Jesus. And then more that Jesus appeared to. As Paul said later on, there were 500 people in Jerusalem that you could talk to about the resurrection. And that's after people had already been martyred. So how many people did Jesus appear to? A lot. And Peter's saying, we saw him. You know, and this is important. People will go that will tell you, people will die for a lie, but they won't die for something they know is a lie. The disciples all paid their martyr's death for saying Jesus was resurrected. You do not lie, you do not die for a lie. You, know, you, may, you might start boldly for a lie, but you're not going to die for a lie when it's, when it's being proved that it's wrong or it's going to cost your life. Verse 30, uh, 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having revealed of the, received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. He sent the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Jesus told them, I need to go to the Father and I will send the Comforter. All right? We use the word Comforter, but the word is paraclete, which means an advocate, a defender, a speaker for you. The Holy Spirit is our defender. He teaches us what to say. He defends us before the Father. And so does Jesus. Satan comes before the Father and says, you know, that, that uh, son and daughter of yours, they are sure terrible terrible uh, people. Listen, look what they did. And the Holy Spirit and Jesus says, uh, well, you know, Father, they're, they're your child. And Jesus says, and by the way, I paid for it. It's gone. It's covered. And, Je- and the Father says, okay, not guilty. Not guilty. Not acquitted, which means that there was insufficient evidence but he declares us not guilty because somebody has already paid for the crime. Jesus on the cross paid for our sin. So that when you stand before God, we don't stand before him in our sin because Jesus says it is paid. Telestai, it is finished. It is paid in full. We need to really understand our sin other people's sins is paid in full. Even for the lost world, their sin is paid in full. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're automatically going to go to heaven without accepting Jesus Christ and that sacrifice, but their sin is paid in full. They will go to hell because they rejected the gift that Christ presents them. We go to heaven because we accept the gift that Jesus gives us. And the Father is not an Indian giver saying, okay, you've been really bad, you lose your gift, I'm taking it back. He keeps that gift in our possession because we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and he gave it to us. This is the beauty because it is eternal life. And eternal life starts the moment we accept Jesus Christ because he is life and he comes in and dwells with us according to Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open, I will come in. And because he is life, the moment he comes in, we have eternal life. And he never out never stay out uh, outlives his welcome he will stay and be there we can't kick him out it's kind of an interesting thing because even if you didn't want him there after you've invited him in you're in trouble because now he's lord and master and says okay now it's mine i bought you with a price and when we become his that price becomes our price and we become his this is why the disciples opened up their letters. We are the bond slaves of Christ. Bond slave. That is a very precious word. I sold myself. This master bought me and I liked my master so much that I have chosen to be their servant. And all through the Old Testament, bond slaves. You sold yourself and at some point you say, well, you know, I know that I'm going to mess up if I get out on my own. This master is a really good master. I want to have to continue to be their servant. And they would take you into, into the house, put a hole in your ear and put a ring, earring in your ear showing that you were a bond slave, that you were theirs, and that you were to be taken care of by your master. Now, there were certain masters you didn't want to be, be bought, bond slave to. You know, you'd go take your chances and hope you got a better master the next time you messed up. But we are bond slaves for Christ. We have chosen him. God, I want to be your servant. And this is important for us to always remember. He is the master. We are the servant. Too often we get it confused and say, God, uh, you know what? I want to be master. And he goes, no, I'm master. And all kinds of trouble happens when you two people are trying to be master. If you've ever been in a workplace where two people are trying to be the master, it doesn't work. You know, somebody has to step back and say, you're in charge. In a marriage, the husband and wife are equal in many ways, but somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to make the final decision, and God says it's the husband. Doesn't mean the husband's smarter doesn't even make, mean that he makes better decisions. Hopefully he's listening to his wife once in a while who's probably going to make a better decision. But ultimately he gets to be the one that gets held accountable for it. And God says, I'm your master. If we will just submit ourselves to him, life is easy. When we don't submit ourselves to him, and he goes, I want you over here. I want to go over there. God says, no, over here. No, I'm going over there. Uh, the beating start, the trial start, the tribulation starts. Goes, you're supposed to be over here with me. This is where I told you to be. And there's all kinds of trouble that come with not being submitted to Christ. And this is what he's saying to the people, that he is there. He says, we have seen him raised up. We're witnesses. Verse 33, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted... And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he has shed, which you now hear. What did they hear? The rushing roar of the thunder. They heard their own languages being spoken by these Galileans who don't know anything. And they're seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit being upon people. 
And this has got to be an amazing thing. And again, what was the great miracle? Was it that each one of these apostles spoke a different language or that everybody heard a different language? You know what? It doesn't matter which the miracle was because it's still a miracle. Yeah. If I'm speaking English and everybody's hearing German and Italian and Spanish and, and uh, Cantonese and all that, that's a miracle. If I actually spoke one of those languages, it's a miracle. Because outside of German, I don't speak any of the other languages. So it doesn't matter what the miracle was. They heard a miracle. They saw a miracle. The Holy Spirit presented things in their language, in the languages that they were used to. We don't know if Peter was speaking in Hebrew to, the, to these assembled Jewish people, or were they still hearing their own language? We don't know because it doesn't tell us. Peter is speaking to a large crowd, most likely in Hebrew, because that's what everybody in that group would have known as a common language. Could have been Greek. But he's speaking to them with this message. Jesus is raised up from the dead. What a beautiful message. This is our message. We serve a risen Savior. He is not dead. He is not in the tomb. You go to Jerusalem today and see an empty tomb that Jesus was supposed to be laid in. And he was laid in there. He was, he was bound up and he's not in that tomb. Verse 34, and this comes from Psalm 110. For David is, is not ascended into heaven, but he has said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your foes your footstool. David was never told, Sit at God's right hand until your foes are made a footstool. But Jesus went to the cross, went to heaven, and is waiting. Waiting for the day when everything will be at his feet. Technically, it's already at his feet, but he doesn't actually rule yet. He will rule during the millennial kingdom, and he will rule during the new heaven and new earth. But right now, he's gathering his bride. He's spending some time building our home, and he's waiting, waiting for the day when the Father says, Jesus, get your bride. He's anxiously waiting, probably. says, Father, when? Yeah, just like when you go to your, your wedding day, there's an anxiety of, can we get this over with? Can we just have the wedding day? You know, the excitement of it, you know, of, is it almost time? Are we ready to say these vows? Jesus is waiting because it's still, even in heaven, it appears from everything we read that only the Father knows the day and time of his return. And it's kind of an interesting thing. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. They all know all things, and yet they choose not to know certain things because of their role in submission. And it's kind of a strange thing. God chooses to not see our sins because they're under the blood of Christ. And he knows they're there. He knows that they've happened, but it's under the blood. It's paid for, and he says, it's gone. By divine fiat or divine command, he says, I don't see them anymore. They're separated as far as the east is from the west from him. He says, I choose not to see them because Jesus paid for them. What does he choose to see? What have you done with Jesus? Very simple statement. What have you done with my son? We accept him. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And we stand before the Father in perfection. We reject him. We get to stand before the Father in the white throne judgment in our, in our filthy rags of righteousness and get condemned. This is the problem that people think. If they just think, you know, the world, and sometimes some of us, if I'm just good enough, God will be happy with me. If I just do enough good things, God is going to be pleased with me and accept me into, into heaven. Over and over in the book of Isaiah, especially, we've read this. God is going to judge what we have done right and say, not good enough. We're condemned for all the good things we do. Our righteousness, filthy rags, when people stand before God. 
in the parable of the of the marriage supper where the, all the nobles and, and top people reject coming to the marriage of the lamb, of the, of the son. He says, okay, go to the highways and byways and bring in the ruffians, bring in the, bring in the rabble, and give them a wedding garment. And if you know the story, he comes in and one of the men, one of the people that came to the wedding decided not to wear the wedding garment and was cast out. This is a picture of what happens. If we reject him and try to come in our own righteousness, well, you know, God, I'm pretty good. You know, I got these really nice clothes. You know, compared to all the other people that have rags and, and garbage, I've got nice clothes. And God says, compared to my standard, you've got rags. You have got rags. The best person who has ever lived on this world is clothed in rags if they're not following God. And this is very important for us to understand. When we deal with others, we need to love them and care for them because God died for them. They're no worse or better than we are in our flesh. And it makes it hard sometimes. You know, when people reject somebody because they're not good enough. They're not good enough to be accepted by us. They have a bad reputation. You know, well, we know what you were doing last night. Well, maybe God doesn't know. Maybe they repented. We need to be able to love them and give forgiveness. Be ready to love and forgive. Our job is not to judge. The other day I was still, you know, talking to somebody and they were going, yeah, I was afraid you might see such, you know, these bottles of alcohol in my house and go, it's your house. What does it matter what I think? I am not your judge. Now, if you're that worried, you've got a problem between you and God. But it's not my problem. I don't care what you do. I do in one sense, but, you know, you know, I don't care when somebody is sinning because sinners sin. You know, and that means all of us sin. And if I really want to get picky about it, I'd have to look at myself as being such a bad sinner before I'm going to look at anybody else in their sin. Because I've got lots of problems of my own to be judging other people. Now I will tell people what God says about sin. I will tell people what God says about it. But it's between them and God what they're going to do with it. Jesus died for that sin. It's covered. What did the, in the, again, going back to the prodigal son, what did the older brother do, the one that had not left home? He still judged his brother. You know, and he judged the father. Dad, I never left you and you never threw me a party for me and my friends. This one ran off and lived in, in sin and you're throwing a party for him? The poor older brother had some problems as well. He had a lot of self-righteousness. I did everything you want. And he wasn't close to the father. He'd been obedient to the father. He had done the father's will, but he didn't know the heart of the father and really wasn't saved because he wasn't willing to be compassionate as the father was. And this is what self-righteousness does to us. If we start thinking, I've got something that you don't have, I'm going to judge others. We've got to be so careful about that. Because it's easy to do. You know, God, I am following you so well. I read my Bible every day. I go to church. You know, I'm so much better than those guys that don't come to church and don't read their Bible. God, I'm praying to you. I'm sharing, I'm sharing you with others. And God's saying, yeah, but it's all you. It's all you. It's just a bunch of filthy rags. You're not doing what I want. We need to be very careful about that. And here he's telling the people, you have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, and this is what you are hearing. You're hearing this. And it says, verse 3, For David is not ascended into heaven, but he said unto him, So the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand. So he's saying, David was not told, ascended into heaven, and said, Sit at my right hand. David, man after God's heart, was not elevated to sit at, at God's right hand because he is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is up there, I'm sure. David loved God. He followed God. He knew what it meant to be forgiven by God. But he is not sitting at the throne waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. So 
in this particular case, Enoch has been, was raptured, using our, our, our term. Elijah was raptured, taken out of this world. Jesus ascended and has been sitting at the right hand of God on the throne of heaven. All right. Enoch, Elijah are in heaven. They're in the crowd of witnesses in front because they are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as God, sits at the right hand of Father waiting for the end days when he is actual ruler of this world again. They will stand before God at the throne. Saved people will stand before God waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb where they will be rejoined with their bodies. Uh, Elijah and Enoch actually had their physical bodies taken and glorified just as we will in the rapture. When the rapture happens, the dead in Christ will, will be raised. Their bodies will be raised and be glorified and they will be reunited with some form of body. Whatever that body, glorified body is, then we will be taken and snatched out of this world and glorified on the way up and we will have our spiritual body and again whatever that means we don't know ascended by this term terminology he's ascended and sitting at you got to add to the rest part sitting at the right hand of the father he is sitting in the throne room next to God the king because he that's his position we are all around the throne <laughs> waiting for our elevation we will rule with him in the millennial kingdom we will rule in the new heaven and new earth because we are the bride of christ now what will rule in the new heaven and new earth i have no idea but we will rule during that period of time as well maybe we're just ruling over angels maybe there'll be another creation who knows uh well during the millennial kingdom they're at his foot He's run, running everything. But on the new heaven and new earth, there's all evil is gone, so there's no enemies to heaven as a footstool. And he's waiting for that day. He bought back this world at the cross. At creation, man was given the title deed of this world and, and designed to be ruler of this world. They sinned and gave the title deed to Satan, who is now called the god of this world little g little g god he's not god but he is the master and ruler of this world that we were supposed to be jesus bought back that title deed but he hasn't fully claimed it until he comes back in the millennial kingdom and says i want my i want my world back and i'm going to rule it and then he really rules it completely when he creates destroys this one and creates a new heaven and new earth but until that, until the millennial kingdom, Satan has quite a bit of control over this world. Not complete control because it's still God's. Because he's still on a leash. He's still on a leash, always will be on a leash. And at the cross, God proved that he's still on a leash and says, okay, you, you, can, you can run this world for another couple thousand years and then I'm taking it. I'm taking what I bought back. And when we get to the place where we have the great jubilee from heaven's point of view, where God says, okay, it's mine, I'm taking it back. And we have the great golden jubilee of heaven, where God says, hey, Adam and Eve sold it, but they didn't, but they didn't permanently sell it. It's mine, I've paid, I've paid the debt, and I'm going to claim it back as a kinsman redeemer, and he's going to take it back. He hasn't taken it back yet. He's waiting for that period of time, and that period of time will be when he comes back with his bride. So, if we die before, like, we die before the we don't have to worry about any of that stuff because we're already up in heaven. You'll be in heaven worshiping God or whatever we do in, so be, in between. Right. So, what do we call it when we die and our spirits go to heaven? We don't sin, we just go. We just do. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with God. So, you know, our body sleeps, but we, everything of who we are, our spirit and soul, is before God. Now, again, what does that mean in the spirit world? I have no idea. All right? What kind of body will we have in, the, in, the, in that time when, when we're resurrected and glorified? I have no idea. 
Jesus could walk through walls and appear and people knew who he was. He could eat food and yet he could disappear at will. You know, so what, what was he? We don't know. We have no idea what it means to be a resurrected, glorified body. We do know that we have something. Probably. We don't know. But he's our only example. You know, he was not a ghost walking through walls. He just appeared. You know, and because technically nothing is solid in, in this world. If you really get into science, all of the, everything that we say is solid has, has nothing but empty space between it. So in the spiritual world, we could be reacting very much to this stuff as if it's water or air from the spirit side of things. We might recognize it, we might not recognize it. For us as human beings, we walk through, we walk through air with no problem. We walk through water with no problem. We hit a stone building, we have a problem. Okay, the next, the next dimension up may say that stone building's nothing, but maybe there's something solid in their dimension that would affect us. We don't know anything about it other than what Jesus did. Did you have a question here or comment, Gary? Not the way this verse is talking about. We, we, we have different things. Yeah, we have different uh, processes on this. From our current mentality of science, we may just enter into a new dimension, which could be ascension into that new dimension, a higher dimension, where we just step out of this dimension into whatever dimension is the spiritual dimension, which not ascension the way, not the ascension maybe the way we are interpreting of going up, but if I ascend into a higher dimension instead of the third dimension that I walk in, I enter into the sixth or seventh dimension wherever God might be, that's an ascension. But we've got to be careful because the word in this one is he ascended to the throne of God, which no, we don't have that ascension. But we will make a ascension, a change from this world into a higher state of some form and into a spiritual state. And this is why it gets very hard because we talk about heaven being up and hell being down. Uh, but is that really what it is? I don't know. The more I get into science, the more I think we're talking about dimensions. That there's a spiritual dimension called hell where God says, you guys aren't going to have any part of this, of this dimension, but those who, who deserve it are going there. And they can't get out of that dimension. There's a gulf spread between them and heaven so that they cannot leave that dimension. And, we can't see it and we're not going to see it. They can see, I believe they can see us, but we can't see them. Or one way mirror, yeah. Uh, and then we will have an ascension into some other dimension. Now, is that perfectly the way it is? I don't know. I just know where we are currently in science, I would say dimensions is, where, is what they're talking about when they say ascending and descending. Maybe they descend into a point where there's, they're in the, the singularity point, uh, dimension where there's nothing. Possibly. Possibly. I'm not going to argue the word that they chose in their, in their knowledge. Ascending. It could be, but in this one specifically you're taking it in context. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right? We're going to ascend into the presence of God, but not to the right hand of the Father. Yeah, it's in the in the context of what it is, he's not he was not taking the right hand of the Father and waiting to be told, sit here until your enemies become your footstool. All right. So, again, context of the word on it. Uh, yes, we're going to ascend, whatever that means. You know, transformation could be a good definition by our, our current, current thought process. Uh, that I transcend this world and move into a different dimension. Yeah, trans, transcend. 
But I want to I want to be careful even using that term because that may be still human thinking. Okay. Right. You know, our our literal ascension could be saying, "I'm taking you out of I'm taking you out of this universe completely, into my universe." In in uh, C.S. Lewis in the final battle, the the book of Narnia and the final battle. They come out of Narnia and they get in and there's this, they, they start walking in and in and deeper and deeper and deeper and they come to this place where they see that all paths from all the different universes come together in heaven. Okay. Uh, so is it that simple? Do we literally ascend? We keep going higher and higher and higher until we actually leave this dimension or this universe and enter into another universe because physics is now telling us that there are universes pressing against each other that probably have different laws and different rules. God is, that doesn't bother me because God is still the God of all those dimensions and all those universes. So we get into this and it's beyond what we can conceive. Whether it's simply I walk out of this, this dimension and transition into another dimension. Does he take me quickly out of this universe and plug me into a to, to the heaven where all the universes come come together I don't know don't don't doesn't matter to me all I know is this is not my home how he's going to make that change I don't care yeah Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with God is that a supernatural beam me up out of this universe and I'm gone is it all of a sudden Everything about me changes and I'm no longer, you know, this is kind of a shadowy dimension where I'm in another dimension altogether. We don't know fully what it means. And it doesn't matter because all I know is God is true and I won't be here. And this world won't have impact on me. And I won't have a sin nature. And I'm going to want to be with him and I'm going to want to praise him and I'm going to want to be obedient because I made my decision for him here and he's going to glorify me and make me who he says he, I am. And whether it's a different dimension, a different universe, a different, a different place altogether, I don't know, don't care, because I'll be with him. And that is the beauty of it. So this book really is me never had to No, it doesn't. We're going to be with him. Because Jesus is the word. Which means we're going to spend eternity with the word. And like I said, if by some strange stroke of the imagination, seven trillion years from now, we finally learn everything there is to know about the word, he'll just come up with some new stuff for us to learn. He'll come up with some new words for us to learn. In new... The never-ending story. But, but this is the beauty of it. We get to go to God, and, and I firmly believe that we're not going to know everything that God knows because that would make us God. He is always going to be God. He is always going to be higher than we are. His thoughts are always going to be higher than our thoughts. He is always going to be greater than we are. And after um, an eternity of eternity, we still won't know everything he knows. Because then we'd be God. We're never going to become God. And this is important for us to understand. I am not God and I'm not going to become God. Most of the religions, your goal is to become like God or become God. Yeah. And that's sad. Because that is why they want... You know, People go, well, you don't understand everything in the Bible. Thank God I don't understand everything in the Bible. Because if I understood everything in the Bible, then I'd be God. And you wouldn't want me to be God. I don't want to be God. That's too much responsibility. You know, so I can't know everything. I don't understand the Trinity. I don't under, understand predestination, and especially when it's matched up against free will. Those two things make no sense to me being both true. That I can choose God, but he's in full control. He's not bending his will to what I do, and I'm not bending my will... You know, and yet he says both are true. Why? Because he's God and he can understand it. And we talked about that last week. Predestination. 
Jesus died on the cross because the Father predestined it. Before they created man, they got together and said, we're going to create man, man's going to sin, and Jesus, I would like you to die for them. And he agreed to do it predestined before he was born, before creation, before the fall of man, he, did, he was already said, yes, I'll die. We can't even comprehend that thought process. We can't comprehend why he would do it. Because what did he get? He got us. Now what we are to him is something more than we understand, I know. Because we know we're sinners. We know who we are in this flesh and in this world. But what we are when we're glorified, we don't know. That's what he died for, is our glorified life. What we will be and how precious, because he calls us a treasure. He calls us precious. I know that I'm not precious and I'm not a treasure when it comes to what God wants. But you know, one of the interesting things is even in a marriage, oftentimes somebody doesn't realize how precious they are to the spouse. I was listening to something in the other day and it said the number one thing that husbands wished their wives understood was how much they loved them. Because most men are absolutely convinced that their wives don't understand how much that they love them. And I know that feeling. To know that you would be willing to do anything for your, your, your wife, and you may not be good at showing it, <laughs> and most, of, most men aren't good at showing it, and yet that's how God looks at us. Do we understand how much he loves us? The answer is no. No matter how much we know he loves us, we still don't know how much he loves us. Because his love is infinite, infinitely greater than anything we can understand. And we don't understand but a small sprinkling of it. Even if you've been walking with God for a thousand years and really get to know his love, you still don't know his love and his mercy, and his grace, and how much more he loves you. And this is the adventure, the never-ending story. God, you love me. I don't understand how much you love me, and he keeps showing us how much he loves us. And I have a feeling because he is infinite love, all through eternity he will keep showing us how much he loves us. All through eternity giving us a new glimpse of his great love. And a new, why? Because everything has to be new or it would get boring. Heaven has to be completely new all the time. What does that mean? God's going to show us things that we are going to be blown our minds out when he starts showing us how much he loves us, how much he cares, and how much he wants to give us. Because again, I don't think he just gives us everything, you know, oh, here's a whole pile of things, you know, uh, by the time you go through that, you'll, you'll know how much I love you. He says, here's a whole bunch of my love. I'm giving you a beautiful home. I'm giving you a beautiful, beautiful new heaven and new earth. And by the way, it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning because he is infinite. He is eternal. He is bigger than anything we can comprehend. Even when we're in the spiritual world, he will be bigger than anything we can comprehend. And we'll comprehend a lot at that point. And he'll be saying, I've got so much more for you. I have so much more to give you. And then he says in this verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You guys killed him, but God has a plan for him. He is the Lord, Kyrios, the master you obey. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He paid the debt for our sins so that he can be our Lord. He is the kinsman redeemer. We sinned, we, we sold ourselves to slavery, and God bought us back because he loves us. And to be able to buy us back, he had to become man. He had to become one of us so that he could buy us back because kinsman redeemer meant that he had to be one of us. So he came and became human. 
lived a perfect life and bought us back so that we will get to spend eternity with him. And again, these are things that we just barely begin to understand. And I hate to leave it in here because the time is up. <laughs> but this message gets to them. They've been waiting for the Messiah. The children of Israel are still waiting for the Messiah as a nation because they don't accept Jesus. The Messiah has come and gone and they don't recognize it. They're looking for the Messiah. For generations, and I'm not sure it's still true, but in Jesus' day especially, and even before that, the women were always looking. Whenever they had a son, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who is going to deliver us? And it's probably still true to the Orthodox, devout Jew, Jewish woman. Is my son the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to change and make everything? Now, they don't look at the promises. They don't look at the fact that he's got to be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and all these other things. But there's always this, am I giving birth to the Messiah? And it goes all the way back to Eve. What did she do? She got excited when Cain was born. I have gotten a man-child. This is the one that's going to crush the serpent's head and redeem us. Boy, was she sad when he killed his brother and, and totally went the wrong way. Then she got excited when Seth was born. I've got the man-child. God's replaced him. And he was at least better. But he wasn't the Messiah. We have the Messiah, the, the one who's going to change everything, the one that's going to rule, and we get to follow him. We as Gentiles get to follow him, the anointed one, the one that died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and brought into the family of God that we could be grafted into the olive tree, which means literally placed into Israel's promises. We haven't replaced Israel like, like a lot of people want to say, but we are engrafted. Their promises apply to us. Not because we took them over, but because we were engrafted into the same root to become part of the family of God because of what Jesus did. This is the message that we're going to see before we're out of this book. Right now, he's still talking to Jews. You know, you guys think that you're special, but you know, we're, we're sinners. You killed the Messiah. And he rose back to the grave. He is not dead. And you know, it's only 50 days since Jesus rose from the dead. The rumors are all over town because you do not squash that kind of a, that kind of a story in a rumor. The, the Sanhedrin killed this guy and he's not in the grave anymore. People are talking about that all over the place and Peter's saying, we saw him alive. He's not dead anymore. We saw him. Listen to our words. We're witnesses. Matter of fact, there's 500 of us. Listen to us. You know, we have the truth. We can go to court and win this case because we are eyewitnesses. We have to go by faith in what they said. They were witnesses to what's going on and they had power in their speech. And this is Peter talking to them. And we don't want to ruin this, but 3,000 people are going to come to Christ during this message. What a powerful message Peter gave. And the Holy Spirit worked on their hearts. I would love to give a message that 3,000 people get saved on. <laughs> Because we'd have to have 3,000 people living, listening at the same time. <laughs> so, Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to understand you better. Help us to follow you in all that you've done and, and to seek after you in all that you do. Guide us, lead us. Help us to speak with the Holy Spirit's words. Help us to understand all that you want us to do and give us the power of the Holy Spirit in an active, strong way. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says 
the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.